Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hi everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of RD and the Inbetweens. My name's Kelly Priest, and as always, I'll be your host. Today, I'm talking to one of our postgraduate researchers, Megan Maunder, to carry on the series that I've started about talking to researchers and HE professionals about what it's like working in higher education and being a researcher when you have a protected characteristic. So I'm going to be talking to Megan today about being a disabled researcher in higher education. Now, it's really important to note that I'll be interjecting my own experience into this conversation. As some listeners will know, I have a long-term chronic health condition, which is covered by the Equality Act. So in legal terms, I am disabled and therefore experience challenges um, working in higher education and (laughs) living my life, but also um, receive an awful lot of support. So I'm going to be talking with Megan about our experiences. So hi, I'm Megan. I'm currently a third year PhD student at the University of Exeter, and I live with multiple chronic illnesses and disabilities. Uh, I didn't get a proper diagnosis or a, a label for most of them until later in my undergraduate and during my PhD. So a lot of it for me, even though I've sort of been living with it my whole life, dealing with the, the admin and the bureaucracy is something that is very, I've had to learn very quickly <laughs> over the last few years. Yeah, um, and I can, uh, as you know, I, I can relate to that hugely. And one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is because I also have um, a number of chronic illnesses and have only in the past few years been diagnosed and I'm kind of navigating the support that is and isn't available um, and how to kind of best operate and look after myself within within an academic environment. So I guess let's, let's start with the big one. How accessible do we feel higher education and research is for people with chronic illnesses? Oh, that's such a I know a question. Um, yeah, I think it does a lot. Like a lot of it depends on what field you're in and the type of research you're in. Definitely. So, how does that work for you? I mean, in my personal experience, my immediate supervisory team and colleagues have been really great and supportive. My, I guess, battles, if they were, have been with admin and bureaucracy and making sure that I get the support I need. I mean, even in my undergraduate it took me until my master's year, which, you know, four years in to get all the accommodations I needed for my exams, which is a very long time. Um, And that only really came as a result of me having a lot of support from my personal tutor um, and friends and family, really. And I think that broadly there's a lot to be done. And I was really hoping, given the current situation, things would become more accessible. But if anything, I actually think they've become more hostile. Really? Yeah, I mean, from personal experience, now accessible routes are being blocked in favour of one-way systems. Mm. Um, I think that there's a lot of discussion about things we're putting in place that disproportionately affect people who are disabled and chronically ill. Um, I know, you know, a worry for me is that with the push to have everything outside was great in the summer, but in the winter, if I get cold, it really exacerbates a lot of my 
symptoms and that's a worry for me and the the kind of the loneliness that you get with that and not being on campus at the moment is also I'm lucky that I have a home office set up but not everyone does and I think that broadly it's that extra load that you have of being a disabled and chronically ill individual where you have less energy than everybody else you're in a lot more pain than everybody else who's able-bodied and then you have this whole load of admin yeah. that you have to deal with with your already limited time in order to make academia accessible and that for me I think is the biggest hurdle and for a lot of people it's the form filling and the constant battle and chasing people up to get what you need in order to access it and there still seems to be a sort of stigma that these things are not leveling the playing field but somehow giving you an advantage and people seem mm. to think an added bonus not realizing that you're already miles behind everyone else and this is just helping you catch up yeah and i i really relate to that th- th- what you're saying about we we've got you know more physical bar- barriers less energy more pain all you know all of our kind of medical symptoms as it were but we've also got to do more work to access support systems and be you know be anything near a level playing field with other people and i think that's the fundamental irony right we've got less energy but more work yes exactly <laughs> um the the thing I, I, that I find really interesting is this, and, and it applies obviously at the moment to a lot of different protected characteristics, but this idea of kind of putting things in place to support disabled people provides advantage. So in the end, we end up with, you know, there's this perception perhaps that we might have more advantage than other people um, when actually, like you say, it's just leveling the playing field. Is that something that you've overtly experienced in academia or have you felt that's just an undercurrent? Um, I think people who are directly involved with me, like I said, they've been really supportive. It's definitely something I felt that dealing with disability and accessibility is not a priority within the administration side of things. And I think people do tend to feel like sometimes you make a fuss over nothing, but it's also like the little microaggressions and comments like when I had a new office chair put in someone said to me oh do you not just like the office chair and I was like well no you know I'm I'm long-term disabled I need a prescription built chair to be able to be in the office um and you know I I I you don't have to explain yourself of course you don't but it's the little microaggressions I think that build up and when I was an undergraduate and applying for graduate jobs a lot of schemes I applied for there was a guaranteed interview if um, you were a disabled student and people said well I don't really see that's fair and I said well no it's because they can't make the accommodations you need in the application process yeah. so why should I be denied the opportunity to apply they've decided that the cheapest and easiest route for them is just to offer me an interview rather than try and accommodate me like I don't have an advantage I'm just not able to compete in the same way you are yeah I know I know what you mean about the microaggressions and I, I find having an invisible illness people are people who are really really understanding up to a point yeah (laughs) and then it's kind of like you know I've got a sit-stand desk which actually since I got it I've not been able to use very much because my it was my knees that was I was struggling with and sitting for so long so I needed to kind of stand and alternate and now it's and, and at the moment I'm going through a phase where my feet are actually the problem and I can't stand for very long so it's and people sort of get said oh you know you obviously didn't or did you did you not really need that in the end 
and and that kind of thing and and I think because most of well 99.9% of the time I don't look visibly unwell there is that kind of I it's those microaggressions where you feel like there's just that tiny bit of doubt in someone's mind that you that you're telling the truth yeah absolutely and I think particularly like you said when it comes to accommodations Mm. I think what people don't understand that it's not a binary thing no you're constantly your situation is constantly evolving your tolerance your pain levels Mm -hmm. and your ability to understand what's going on and I think that yeah that the system we currently have doesn't make room for those accommodations to change and like you said you feel like you have to kind of justify your current Mm. things even if they don't work for you and it feels like under the current system you don't have the space to experiment to figure out what works best for you either because you kind of have to try and take everything because you don't know how many chances you're going to have to reassess your situation absolutely absolutely um so I wanted to pick up on um as well what you said about about kind of recent developments due to covid and the introduction of one-way systems and the impact of that on accessibility can you talk to me a little bit about some of the issues you have experienced or foresee um around the kind of covid related changes that make campuses less accessible yeah i think from not on campus but for example I had the issue going to my bank because they wanted me to go up in the lift and down the stairs and I said well I'm not in a position to manage stairs today and they were a bit taken aback because obviously I don't look disabled she said oh that's fine we'll come to a different arrangement for you and as it was they sorted everything and I could do everything downstairs but it worries me that on campus people are going to see people who are they don't know are visibly it, it worries me that on campus that people who are invisibly disabled might be called out for doing what's right for them. Because whilst I'm pretty open about my disability, obviously not everyone who knows me knows I'm disabled. And also I worry with particularly how the university word things about challenging people who are not wearing masks and are breaking the one-way system when we know there are people that are not in that position. Mm. And I think that particularly in a world where people are scared and people are unsure about themselves, people are less likely to be kind and tolerant about people who are behaving differently. And I think that that for me is really the key. You've got the combination of we're already in a, you know, I was talking to someone about this not long ago about, um, you know, we're already in that kind of fight or flight mode. And we have been for months because of this pandemic. You know, we're already scared. We've got, you know, everything that, or our emotions, our senses, everything is heightened to a degree to help us deal with the current situation. You combine that with the microaggressions that people already face um, in, in an academic environment or in any environment indeed. And so, and then, you know, the very real instances we've seen out and about of, you know, people challenging people not being socially distanced or not wearing a mask and and then the fear that that will happen when you come back on campus becomes very real and I think it's difficult for people to understand that without the context of the microaggressions I don't know what you think oh absolutely and I think you know as a society we're all trying to pull together right now and I'm I'm not saying that the measures in place are not needed yeah but if there's a, a strong worry and a concern that yet yeah, because of these microaggressions and this build-up and this really strong tension that we're feeling in society right now, 
it's going to disproportionately affect people who are disabled and who the current systems don't work for. And I think you're right in saying that it's a it's a systematic thing that's being exacerbated by this situation. Mm. And one of the things that I mean, I think we've we've talked about in the past as well is that the the idea of any campus being accessible is loose in terms of there's there's a difference between meeting the legal requirements and being fully accessible and inclusive um and you know the key example of that being the building that i work in has a push plate door to get in and then it has a pull door um to get in the actual but to get in a hallway and then a pull, pull door to get in the actual building you just think okay that so you can get into the you can get into the corridor <laughs> if you're say well but you can't get any further um and like you know we know a lot of buildings on our campus but this is true of all university campuses and all public spaces really that have one accessible entrance and how does that work with a one-way system um what the fact that you know that these buildings and these campuses generally aren't necessarily built to properly be inclusive but to kind of meet the requirements of the law how does that make you feel as a disabled person i think it's incredibly frustrating and it feels incredibly unfair that for example in the past year there have been times where the quickest route between my building and my supervisor building uh i'm not able to make because i've it's been a day where stairs have not been my friend and the accessible route is about four times as long Mm. so not only is it adding extra time to my day but it's also taking more out of me because I'm having to make that route and it's just incredibly frustrating that in 2020 when equality equity and inclusivity should be at the top of everybody's priority that these things are constantly overlooked and when they're brought up they're not taken seriously particularly like you said with doors it's so frustrating for me to push heavy doors like it causes me an incredible amount of pain and when i say to people and they're like oh well that's not a really big deal in the grand scheme of things is it but it's something that the university in reality there are plenty of solutions to do it's just not high on the agenda and it frustrates me because it feels like disabled students are not as valued and the same for disabled staff as well and I think that that's that's getting to the crux of it, isn't it? It's not it's not just the kind of the actual access issue and the fact that you know you can't that the the you know the accessible route to your supervisor takes it out of you. It's actually that um, fundamentally, it it that those uh, sort of systematic and structural microaggressions, if you will, make you feel less welcome. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when you're in a a group, potentially people who you don't know that well, on a different academic campus, for example, and they try and walk a route that's accessible, it's really hard, uh, a route that isn't accessible, it's really hard to be the one to speak up all the time, be like, oh, actually, I can't do that. Can we Mm. do this instead? And the onus is always on the individual and it's an extra emotional load it's an extra load logistically because you have to plan your trips in a way that a lot of people can just turn up and hope for the best and that's not an option for myself and and quite a lot of disabled students and 
it's frustrating that the onus is always on you and it's an extra load that you have to carry when you're already carrying more than everybody else. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, can we talk a little bit about being being a researcher and what what challenges or or limitations there are from the system uh, for engaging kind of in the full research academic life um if you are disabled or chronically ill are there are there particular things that are difficult or challenging well i have a very big pet peeve about well it's not a pet peeve <laughs> it's an injustice and it's not fair i really it really frustrates me that as a student you're only exempt for council tax if you work full time if you're if you're studying full time as soon as you drop down to part time you have to pay council tax so if you're a student who's decided that they'll take the drop in income of their stipend because they can't physically meet those five days, not only are you losing your income there, but you're losing more income because now you have to start paying council tax. Yeah. And this is the same with sick leave. So if you're a UKRI funded student, you get up to 13 weeks sick leave per 12 months, which even if you're an able-bodied person and get into an accident, 13 weeks probably isn't enough to aid recovery if it's a pretty serious accident. Mm -hmm. But also if you're dealing with long term chronic illnesses, that sick leave is quite difficult to access. And I feel like a lot of these little bureaucratic things could just be fixed by the UK sector as a whole, starting to employ PhD students as employees rather than students with a stipend. And I think falling into this grey area where you work as a teaching assistant and you're not really an undergrad because you're not doing a talk you're not doing a taught module, so you're not a taught student, but you're not really staff either, means that actually you don't really feel represented either. And it's really hard to, to make that change when there's such a small group of you and you're only sort of doing that for a short period of time. And that really impacts your research then, like I said, because I have less time to spend on my research when I'm trying to mitigate dealing with all my health issues and all the emailing I have to do separately to academia. But then I also, I have to chase up all of the things that I need to accommodate me to make that work. And it seems unfair that the university doesn't take on more of the responsibility to help make that easy for you. And I think that the part-time kind of flexibility um, issue is really, really key because we know so many people who are disabled or chronically ill, um, either can't work full-time or if they or like me I am able to work full-time but I am able to work full-time if I'm able to work flexibly yeah um, and if I wasn't able to work flexibly and like I will sort of put my hands up and say my experience of support and um, opportunities for flexible working has been incredibly positive which I know is not necessarily the norm um and i accept that but you know i work i do compressed hours and have done for a, a year and a half no oof, almost two years now um and that really helps me having a regular like every two weeks i have a day off in which i just rest um and the in the positive impact that has had on my physical and mental health is substantial and I've always had the opportunity to work at home um, one day a week. Obviously, I'm working at home all the time. And, and, and when we go back, you know, it, it, into a post-COVID world, we will be working at home a little bit more. 
and working at home physically has been very good for me because it takes the kind of takes the commute and takes the the things that I find challenging particularly first thing in the morning with arthritis out of the day and so I'm able to kind of you know to use the sort of well-trodden spoons analogy I'm you know I'm I'm able to retain some of some of those spoons that I use doing kind of very basic things like getting in the shower and driving to work um I can I can use either on my work which is a good thing or I can you know dare I say it use them on things that I do for myself um like hobbies or relaxing or um or seeing um friends either online or socially distanced obviously um you know that flexible working is really crucial and I know where people don't have that they have no choice but to work part-time because it's the only way that they can manage oh I completely agree that if my supervisory team wasn't fully supportive of my flexible working hours and even pre-covid me working from home not full-time, but I, I tend to split my time. So I had certain activities I did at home and certain ones that I did in the office. I'm not sure I would have stuck with it because like you said, there's always a choice that you have to make in how you want to spend your limited energy reserves. Yeah. And for me, sometimes mornings are difficult. Um, I've never been a morning person anyway, but my conditions exacerbate my issues in the morning being able to be at home and not worry about pushing myself to get dressed and walk or drive or take public transport gives me that time to think and lets me invest my time better and I think there's a lot of misconceptions that just because you can work you can't be in that much pain you can't be that ill and a lot of people don't realize that it's a constant choice you have to make yeah it's like do I feel well enough to work today do I choose work above my health and that for me is a really really challenging one and i mean we know you know that academia has a culture of overwork um and kind of toxic cultures in relation to mental health and actually it's taken me since i stopped so i've i've stopped being an academic 5 years ago and in professional services and during that time have been able to carve out much better work life balance which has been better for both my mental and physical health but also um, kind of checking out of both that culture of overwork, but also the kind of the prioritizing of work over, over myself. Yeah. And I'm still doing it. Like I'm getting, I know I'm not well enough to work and I'll, and I'll get it. I'll get out of bed. I'll have a shower. I'll drive in and I'll arrive at work and I'll just be absolutely exhausted. And they'll, you know, my colleagues will look at me and go, why are you here? why are you here and actually I've done it where I've gone into work and then I've been so unwell from doing that that I couldn't get home again (sighs) and it's just you you know but but there's that that guilt where I feel like but but I should be working because you know I don't have a broken leg or whatever you know I should I should be going to work I should be doing something you know I've got lots to do you know that wonderful uh, illusion that we have that the world won't keep turning without us if we're not doing our jobs and how do you feel like your disability fields feeds into those kind of overwork um slightly toxic cultures in academia yeah like i said i think i have been really lucky like my yeah. supervisor is incredibly supportive and helps my flexible working and you know 
the last few months and its craziness aside, broadly, <laughs> um, I feel like I'm on track and I'm in a relatively good place with my research. But you're right, it's a lot of retraining your brain and removing those expectations from society mm. and sort of the internalized ableism about what we should and shouldn't be doing. And I think, you know, just to look in, in a general terms for everybody in the pandemic, at the start, people were saying, oh, if you're working from home, you need to get up and get dressed mm. and make it like you're going to work every day. I think that was sort of abandoned a few months in when people realised that that wasn't really sustainable when everyone was struggling with this huge amount of uncertainty. And it's it's the same process, really. Like I, you have to, I had to realign my expectations, but you're right with the toxic culture. I was on a course a few years ago now and it was supposed to be a session about well-being and the person said oh who here actually sticks to the 40-hour week and I put my hand up and I felt very singled out for it and I, I politely spoke to the person who who ran it at the end because he was basically saying oh well done you you're sticking to what we should be doing that's what we should be aiming to do and it's a very brave thing to make sure you stick to your work-life balance and I said well you know there are some weeks where I do a lot more than that but I try and balance it out with times when I'm doing less but I said you know you brought this up in a context not knowing what my background was mm. and I don't have a choice no. like if I routinely overwork myself I won't be able to do any work and I've done that you know and that's been part of my journey over the past five years is I have routinely overworked myself and I've ended up like in, in one case quite literally flat, flat on the floor unable to move oh, because gosh. I was in so much pain it was a couple of years ago I did I had a week where I did the induction day in Exeter, which the induction is something I kind of do the all the presenting and the talking at it, and I find it incredibly incredibly draining, and it's on my on my feet all day, which I'm not good at with my joints. I then did it in drove down to Cornwall the next day and did the same thing in Penryn, and then at the end of that I drove to Birmingham to present at a conference the next day, and I got back on the Thursday, and um. I just phoned my boss and said, I'm going to, I'm, I'm done. Can't get out. I couldn't physically get out of bed and I couldn't get out of bed for a week because mm. it was, and, and like, I, you know, like you, I had a fantastic, fantastic boss who, when I got back to work, sat me down and went, you are never doing that again. Do you hear me? <laughs> like you cannot physically do that. We will find other ways, but you know, and, and that, and I felt incredibly guilty because I thought, well, that shouldn't be an impossible thing to do, you know, to do things at different campuses and then to travel to go to a conference. But actually it's the kind of situation of, well, for me, it is. Yeah. And actually this year getting to do all, you know, I did all of those things actually this year, but virtually. And it didn't take anything like the same amount of energy. And because of that, I did a better job of it. Um, and I didn't end up, taking a week off work to recover um but the, it's, it seems to me it's like something you said right at the beginning which I really related to which is you know after getting diagnosed and after you know going through a period of potentially kind of fighting a medical system that you know for us doesn't value or doesn't um believe in women's pain and kind of fighting and fighting and fighting to get a diagnosis you then have to completely reframe your attitudes to all of your symptoms and learn how to manage them because the way that you've managed them before 
how, I don't know how to say this quite, yeah. but it doesn't I really work. No, I completely agree. Once you know what's wrong. Yeah, and I think, especially when you do know what's wrong, it's easier to figure out how you can help yourself. And I realised that being an academic does actually come with a certain amount of privilege when Mm -hmm. dealing with healthcare in that you have an institutional access to research papers and that you also have the ability to understand those papers. So I can go to my specialist appointments armed with all of the reading I've done. Yeah also knowing what my potential clinical outcomes are and the type of things I would like to experiment with that are going to help me. But you're right, it was having that label that allowed me to engage with that. And like you, um, traveling takes it out of me and I have to build in rest days if I'm traveling for a conference. Yeah, It's not an option to not have those for me. Like it really wipes me out. And it's the same in my personal life. You know, I'm very jealous of people who can go on holiday, come back on a Sunday and start work on a Monday because I need that day at home to recover even if I've had a great time yeah traveling will take it out of me and for me having my diagnosis meant I could pinpoint a few things that help mitigate my symptoms like actually for me the pandemic helped some of my symptoms in the sense that I'm always in a prescription built chair or a supportive chair or in bed which meant that issues with my spine and my neck the the pain there was reducing and I could mitigate that a bit more because I wasn't in a position where I was sitting in those awkward plastic chairs in a mm. seminar room or they were sitting in an uncomfortable lecture hall. And that's something that as the world starts to reopen again, I worry about meeting that balance, knowing how much of a difference that's made for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, we've talked already about some of the, the fears the real fears you know that we and other disabled people have about the kind of returning um post-covid and that's not even taking into account where people are vulnerable because of their disability whether that's whether that vulnerability is kind of government approved or government sanctioned or not um the level of challenge i think and, and i think that's the thing that we're seeing, we're hearing a lot within kind of the discussions around Black Lives Matter as well, is the extra physical and emotional labour involved in fighting to be on a level playing field with everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, especially in the past, that labour has been done for free. And I think that now more institutions are, I guess, realising that this is something that takes a very emotional toll on people as well as the the physical time spent engaging with this and they're starting to compensate people for that i know that um some institutions are now starting to pay their speakers who come and talk about this as they should be because it is a very difficult thing to navigate and i think also there's a very large difference between people who research these things and people who experience these things a lived experience is something that I think isn't taken, it, it isn't held in as high a regard. Yeah. And for me, I'm so lucky that I've had incredibly supportive people in my life, but also I have disabled friends and family who've helped me navigate what is quite a difficult world and process and given me that support and, and introduced me to to theories and metaphors and and ways to deal with it and explain it and as you said like especially you can draw parallels with all sorts of 
of groups that are in a similar situation and that they're not represented and they're not being accredited fairly for their labour. There's something in that I really wanted to pick up on because it's a conversation I've had with a few people lately, actually, with chronic illnesses, which is about kind of the the um, the struggles and difficulties of having a chronic illness when you are not surrounded by or don't know any other people with that chronic illness or a, another chronic illness whom you can relate to and share experience with, um, you know, have a whinge at as well because we all well I love a whinge um and not having that kind of network of support in a work context but also um the way that not having visible role models as well who are disabled or have chronic illnesses the impact that 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 has on that sense of sense of belonging you know I when I first um got my diagnosis I knew nobody else under the age of 60 with my medical condition and as much as kind of I talked to older friends and family I never felt like they really understood what I was going through yeah because they weren't kind of 29 years old and dealing with this diagnosis and it's only through being very open on social media that I have met and connected with a range of other people who are around the same age as me who have the same medical condition as me and provide a supportive community and sometimes I don't know how I'd cope without that but I was talking to someone who is chronically ill who knows no one else her age that has her medical condition and feels kind of so isolated and so alone and doesn't feel like as well she's got people to kind of look up to to see how they how they deal with it and how they cope and how they progress and I wondered what if you had any thoughts about that kind of that culture in academia about the culture of support but also that kind of culture of role models that we don't necessarily have yeah i think it's difficult and and i'm the same like i don't know in person anyone my age with my condition yeah um, and even just in the uk support networks i found online they tend to be either children or much older yeah um and it's a difficult thing to come to terms with, but like I said, I've had the privilege of being able to access research papers that help mitigate some of my concerns. And I have an incredibly supportive GP. She is wonderful. Yeah. But yeah, it's hard. And I mean, I think that particularly in academia, I'm, I'm very open about it because it's not going to change for me. Yeah. And yes, there's always a concern that that may come around and potentially be used against me later on. But I think that's a risk I'm willing to take because actually since I have been more open other people have confided in me more mm. and people feel more open and more willing to come and chat to me and even if they don't necessarily have a disability they might need some help navigating a process and I've been there and I've done that and particularly friends again who are dealing with new diagnosis the the paperwork is hard and sometimes it's just having someone to hold your hand through that process and yeah I think you're right that there is a culture about it and I honestly think unless people speak more openly about it that's not going to change I'm I'm saying I'm you know I'm very aware that I have a privilege that I feel that I'm able to do that and yeah. not everyone is able to do that I feel that broadly the the team in the group I'm in is incredibly supportive and welcoming and I feel safe enough to do that but you're right this culture needs to be challenged and it can be isolating if you don't know anyone who's gone through it and in all honesty if it wasn't for the fact that I have a very good friend 
that I made through undergraduate who re solidly campaigns for equality and equity for disabled people and has done throughout her career and, and still does now, I'm not sure things would have been as easy for me and I wouldn't have been so assertive mm. in making sure my accommodations were made. And I think that as well, sometimes you do kind of have to throw out the, world, the rule book and not be afraid to pester people when they should yeah. be doing something and not be afraid to email and say, oh, okay, can you give me an update on this? Or where, when is this happening? Can you please give me a progress update? And yes, that's hard and it's, again, taking extra time. But unless you know but this podcast I think is great because we are talking about it and it's giving people I guess a, a route a platform to realize that there, there are other people who are kind of going through the same thing but you, there is a shortage of disabled role models in academia and I do wonder sometimes how how long I'll be able to stay in academia there's mm. uh, an assumption that PhD students are single able-bodied have no caring responsibilities and can just up and move yes the thing you're saying there about you know two sides of that thing thing you're saying about privilege is really keen and I feel that sometimes because one of the things that we do have in academia is more flexibility than other professions perhaps do and I do feel more much more comfortable being open about my medical problems um in an academic environment than I think I would in a in industry because there's a level of I don't think I had to phrase this. Phrases. Even if people aren't understanding and aren't supportive, because of the kind of environment we're in, there's at least a perception that people should be. Yeah. And so that feels like a protection. Because I sort of think, well, if I'm open about it and you do discriminate against me, you can't do that. And I feel like I feel like I have more more um more power in in that situation than i would do in other roles in other industries but you know the lack of role models and the lack of seeing people kind of doing things differently and working flexibly at a more senior level it's a concern yeah absolutely and and i hear what you say about academia somewhat because of its nature i think because of the way we challenge our assumptions as you do in research means that you're right even if it's not happening there's a perception that it should be mm. and I, I do worry especially when I go for job interviews and things which I've not done for a while but when it came to me graduating I would never apply for a job that didn't have flexi time in the job yeah. description um, and that's just a thing that I have to accept that I need it and if they're not having it in the job description I know I have to fight tough and nail for it and it's not a fight I'm willing to have um, but also when I go for various jobs, there's so many that like, oh, do you have any questions? I'm like, oh, yes. Well, how supportive of you about working time? What's your sick leave policy like? Do you have X, Y, Z? But there's always a worry that if you start asking these questions, they're going to be. They're going to say something along the lines of, oh, well, this person seems more trouble than they're worth. And it's always a worry, isn't it? That as soon as you start talking about it, people don't understand and, and misconceive what it is you're saying but I think there's also a movement that's that's broadly trying to be more inclusive and in saying well, actually these people have just as much to give and have just as much potential as able-bodied people we're just not giving them the tools with which to do it like for example I've discovered using my screen reader as a sort of audiobook allows me to engage with 
materials on days when previously I don't feel like I would have been able to achieve much because I, I couldn't sit at my computer desk. I saw something someone tweet the other day about actually that some like um, journal companies like Taylor and Francis, they have read aloud functions on their journal articles. This has kind of, this has completely changed my life discovering this two days ago. <laughs> like it's really small, really tiny, really, might seem really insignificant to people, but are the impact that's going to have. Yeah, and I, I think it's wonderful. But I also think that the onus needs to be on institutions with, yeah. to make sure that, particularly if you're having to use software, which is big, it's clunky, it takes a lot to run, that you have computers that can adequately run it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, these little things that are starting to make things easier. And the thing is, they don't just make things easier for people with disabilities either. They make it you easier. Know, to, yeah, exactly. And I think there needs to be a change in the perception that changing one thing doesn't mean that you're erasing history. It's always the analogy, isn't it? As people say, oh, well, you, you need to understand why it was there before we start changing it. And I'm sorry, but like, I don't need to understand why the steps were there to yeah. know that some people need a ramp instead. Yeah. Like it's 2020. We need to stop prioritizing architecture and history and tradition over people. Oh, that's that just needs to be a mantra for everything. Um, just yeah. To to sort of move or move to think about ending on a slightly positive note. What are, what are our kind of like? What are our hopes for the future? You know, we're you know we're at we're at a a moment of change in the world in so many many ways. What what do we hope? the world you know if we we were to kind of talk about our post-covid um accessible inclusive world of academia what would that be like oh um i think definitely what i mentioned about geography earlier i think we need to stop particularly in academia assuming that because you've moved around a lot that that's really important um and especially now we've got all these wonderful tools for collaboration with different institutes and we are able to engage much more online with people we wouldn't have before. I don't necessarily think it's as needed as before because I think you get that exposure to new ideas and concepts yeah. and teams, perhaps not in the same way as you would by moving there, but you, you still get that exposure in a way we didn't even 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, so hopefully geography becomes less of an issue. I think definitely, like you said, the, the removal of the toxic culture, you know, the normalizing a work-life balance and it's something that I've particularly found when I've been to open days and things. I'm like, oh, what's the work-life balance like? And people are shocked that someone in their, well, I guess now mid-20s is prioritising that. And I think that changing the idea, and this, this affects everyone as well, you know, people with children or people with caring responsibilities, that early career academics are completely unattached and have that freedom is really important. And just making it a more open culture in which we can talk and support each other and that our differences are used to help improve life for everyone and improve your research rather than used to disadvantage you. Yeah and I think we're at a point where that because of the way things have changed with Covid that it can happen. Yeah I really hope so. Yeah and I, I do think there's you know like like you were saying earlier I think at the moment there are clear issues around accessibility where the kind of covid measures aren't are making buildings and systems less accessible for people 
but in the long run the kind of change in the way of working and the change in people's attitudes that it feels certainly feels like covid has brought um into the workplace might might lead us to a more positive shift and an understanding that that positive shift will benefit us all yeah I think so and I I hope that people are starting to realize that I think broadly people who've had who've come from a place in the pandemic where they've had their own home and they've not had to worry financially have in some ways appreciated the chance to slow down and spend that time with their families even if everything else has been incredibly difficult um, and I realised that I fall into that category and I'm so grateful that, you know, my income is stable and I, I have my own little place with my partner and we have a garden. So for us, you know, spending that time together was was great, even if we struggled with, with the rest of the world. And I think that people are prioritising their work-life balance and their families now. And I, I just hope as well with, with architecture, things like we were talking about doors earlier, now touch and contact is an issue for everyone there's no reason to have not to have electric systems that keep the doors open and they yeah. shut automatically when the fire alarm goes off and little things like that that we're now starting to consider i hope become the norm and particularly when considering new buildings and refurbishing them i really hope the priority is to have a, disa- a disabled person on the planning committee because i yes. think a lot of things are not willfully ignorant it's just because you've not experienced it and i'm hoping that the more academia embraces diversity, the more we can have open conversations about these things to make sure that that's not the case. Thank you to Megan for taking the time for such a candid and thought-provoking conversation. I wanted to end on the positive note because I do think we're at a tipping point. We're at a point where things could get a lot better for accessibility and for disabled and chronically ill people in higher education and all walks of life and indeed in doing so I do firmly believe and there's an awful lot of evidence to suggest that in in systems being more accessible for disabled people they'll be more accessible for everyone. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between.